Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heard on the Street, Street Fight's podcast where we uncover the stories behind the companies, and more importantly, the people that constitute this sector of media and advertising that we all call local. So where are they from? What makes them tick? What business and life lessons can we draw from that? So I'm Mike Boland, lead analyst at Street Fight, and our guest today is Jonathan Harrop, Senior Director of Global Marketing at Ad Colony which works with brands and agencies to optimize and advance their digital advertising. So we talked to Jonathan from our studio in San Francisco about the trends he's tracking and the best practices he's exercising. So here's our discussion with Jonathan. So Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yep, absolutely. We'll we'll have some fun here. Um, so we have a lot to talk about, uh, including diving deeper into everything I just mentioned. But first, let's start with a quick intro for you and Ad Colony for those unfamiliar. Yeah, so uh, I'll kind of dive into myself first. Um, I've you know been in the mobile space for quite a long time in some form or fashion. Um, I was doing Apple business sales prior to going <laughs> to GameStop and working on their digital products. Uh, primarily, that was PC, but towards the end of my time there, we started kind of focusing on apps, app store growth. Um, at the time, Apple still had its affiliate program going on, and that was GameStop's uh, avenue to put some links to apps that were connected to the publishers that everybody worked with. So, you know, Warner Brothers was a big partner at the time uh, with the Batman games, but they also had the Lord of the Rings uh, strategy apps that were coming out. So they would say, hey, can you guys uh, can you guys promote this app in your the GameStop retail app. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. We built out a, um, a recommendation list for that sort of thing. So that was sort of the, the foray into the mobile game marketing space for me. Uh, after GameStop, uh, went to a startup called Evolver um, with my old boss from GameStop, actually. And that was focused on what you would now call re-engagement. Um, at the time, it was VIP programs, push notifications to get people to re-engage with an app. Uh, we were doing rewarded video uh, at the time, which was still very new, uh, limited time events, physical rewards for stuff. Um, we we pivoted a couple of times, which is not uncommon in a lot of uh, a lot of startups. But ultimately, like that led to us getting acquired by uh, Ad Colony uh, to keep that story short, and have been here since, kind of doing the uh, both sides of the business. Nice, um, and, and I can see how those kind of those dots connect. Uh, your time in the gaming world, which, by the way, I think that's very interesting. I want to spend some time talking about the the transformation in gaming and the explosion in gaming and mobile gaming over the last decade. So you're kind of in the thick of that. But I can see how those dots connect to, you know, interactive ad units and some of the things we're going to get into that Ad Colony is doing in terms of that kind of playability and bringing that, you know, gamification to something that is otherwise a, you know, static medium. So so interesting stuff. So before we get into some of those things that Ad Colony is doing, let's Let's stick with kind of you and your background just for just a minute, because um, one of the things we like to kind of pry out of our guests is, you know, some of the takeaways they've learned in their career, specifically things that our audience members who might be younger in their careers could kind of take away from that in terms of skills cultivation and what we like to call cross training. And I think you have like an interesting background with respect to that kind of cross training exercise when you talk about, you know, at Apple with like kind of sales and then, you know, the marketing work you've done and moving into the gaming world. It's just like, you know, everyone's kind of unique. It's like a snowflake. Everyone's like unique background and how they, you know, got to where they are now, whether it be like, you know, by design or serendipitously. So I guess, 
you know, boiling all of that down into like a tangible question for you, Jonathan, um, what are what are some of the things that that you point to that kind of helped cultivate, you know, the executive you are today and what takeaways are there in terms of what you would recommend to kind of younger folks in, in the earlier stages of their career path to look out for and to make sure they kind of, you know, likewise cultivate? I would I would definitely say that I, I place myself in that uh, serendipity bucket for right. sure. Um, you know, there's, it's kind of cliche to say it's not what you know, it's who you know, uh, which isn't, I don't think it's quite as black and white as that. Um, but being able to make those conversations and network with people does end up opening a lot of opportunities for people, whether that's, you know, just a simple, uh, friendship and a conversation that leads to someone joining a podcast here and there, which is, uh, you know something that a lot of people are looking into right now. I think mm -hmm. everybody has a podcast now. Right. Um, but also just being able to like lean on people when you have questions. Um, so my wife, for example, she was a, uh, she was actually a professional video gamer when I met her. Uh, she was a professional guitar hero player. Wow. Um, based off of that relationship, she worked at id software, uh, which was then acquired by the, I know uh, id well, yeah, that's doom. That's, I mean, they're, they're classic in terms of gaming history. Yes, so her her name is in uh, some rage credits, uh, some quake credits, nice um, or some uh, but, some Easter eggs. Yeah, yeah, she, she especially the the rage mobile title at the time uh, wow, was a big cool. one for them. Uh, but so through her, I was introduced to her boss at the time, uh, Steve Nix, who he went on to go work at GameStop, and he was looking for someone to sort of run their community marketing and engagement, and basically went. He he asked his network, Do, "Does anybody know anybody?" and uh, we weren't married at the time. She was like, hey, you know, my, my boyfriend would be a great fit for this and talk to him. And he was like, oh, yeah, I remember you from that that one Christmas party, you know, and it, uh, you seem like a smart guy. Why don't you come in an interview? That worked out, um, you know, and then I ultimately followed him to Evolver. And, uh, you know, it, it's it worked out because I wasn't stuck in a corner nursing a drink. Um, not to say that there's anything wrong with being a little, uh, a little bit of an introvert. I myself uh, very rarely went out even prior to uh, not going out being a thing. Right. Uh, but, you know, just being able to carry on conversations with people at, at professional events is hugely valuable uh, in the long term. And I think, you know, people who are younger in their careers are somewhat intimidated, I think, by and large, by people who are more, more experienced. Like, man, how did you get to, how did you get there? What did you do? Um, and I found both from how I talk about things to people externally, but also, um, as I was kind of growing up and um, going within these this career progression, is no everyone wants to share. No one, no one is really like, no, I can't have it. It's mine. Like very few people are pulling the ladder up behind them. Um, and I think that's something that the more people early on in their careers understand is that people want to mentor. People want, want to share their experience. People want to help. Um, that will remove that sort of anticipation of asking, like, hey, tell me about how you got here. And I think that will help people hugely long-term. Yeah. Um, the other thing I can say is like working hard is a cliche, but uh, I would attribute a lot of my, my growth and success to having a startup mindset. Um, I'm very used to doing things with very little support. Um, you know, at Evolver, I was employee number four behind the three founders. Um, so it is a little, uh, it's, a, it's, you take on a lot. And so my, stance for a lot of my career has been, oh, does something need doing? Um, I've got time and I 
know at least 50% of that problem, uh, let me let me take a stab at it. And I think that has helped immensely. Um, it's actually something that I've had to rein back as I've moved up um, to kind of say like, no, this, this is not my my problem to solve. I'm happy to contribute my viewpoint if people ask for it. Right. Um, but like being willing, I think is very important to ongoing career growth. Um, and being able to, you know, ask to sit in a meeting and say, Hey, uh, can I just listen in and kind of get a, a picture of what's going on? Um, listen to feedback when people have it. Um, very rarely do people, you know, yeah, I mean, I say yell, but you know, air quotes, uh, very rarely is feedback done negatively by most, by most bosses or people outside of your chain of command, they, they want to help you grow. They want to, they want to make sure that the company is as strong as possible. And that doesn't happen without open lines of communication. Um, the biggest thing that I have to say that's helped me as a manager, as someone with employees who report to them is actually operating under what's called fearless feedback. So if you've ever talked to anyone who's worked at Apple, this is one of their like core HR principles. And I, I it's not under, I don't think it's under NDA or anything. It's a pretty uh, standard HR mechanism. But it's that when anyone can give anyone feedback at any time about anything, and it's not personal, and you approach every conversation with that level of like, hey, I'd like to give you some feedback on X. Now, obviously, it's not as prescriptive as that usually. But, you know, I ask for feedback from all of my direct reports and say, hey, how am I doing? Like, how can I support you better? Um, how's your workload? What am I putting off on you that you're not comfortable with? Uh, likewise, you know, I can go to them and say, Hey, uh, I'd like to give you some feedback about, um, you know, that report you just did or that call we just had. Uh, and the, because it's not, I mean, it's personal in that I'm invested in their growth and, you know, hopefully they're invested in me being a better boss because that helps them. Um, but it really helps sort of keep things open and clear and there's no resentment, I don't think. And I, that's something that I've tried to carry with me no matter what job I've been in. And that's, Honestly, if, if you talk to people who've been through Apple in any capacity, like they, everybody has a couple of good um, organizational tips like that because mm. that's something that Apple really does focus on. Absolutely. Um, and, and as a startup founder, I completely agree with you on taking any opportunity to kind of learn new skills. And sometimes that's a function of just like cash flow. Like you can't hire a developer. So, you know, in that situation, I essentially taught myself and became a full-fledged, you know, front-end web developer. Um, but ha being in that cash strap position, but a combination of that and the desire to want to learn it. So when things break in the future, I can fix them. That kind of thing I think is great. But I also think there's like a balance, right? Like there's that, but the other end of that, the other extreme is if you kind of do too much and do everything and, and can't delegate. So I think there's like a, definitely a sweet spot somewhere in the middle there of, of, you know, cultivating those skills, you know, never thinking you're above any task, but at the same time being strategic with time management, um, um, I think that's like we're all we're all trying to kind of find that perfect sweet spot. So that's great. And and also to remark on your your wife's career, that's very interesting that you know she was doing that before you know what what has since exploded as you know, which is the world of esports and Twitch streamers and kind of that world. It seems like she was kind of in on that before that became a huge thing. Yeah, I mean some of the organizations that um, were around then are still going. Um, We've since grown into pretty avid esports people, and this, the the scene itself has gotten much more organized. Um, some of that is due to Riot putting a ton of money into it. Some sure. of that is Blizzard putting a ton of money into it. I, I myself am a huge Dallas Fuel Overwatch League fan. Mm -hmm. 
um, which continues the the Dallas sporting tradition of having a, a ton of great talent and doing absolutely nothing with it. Um, although, <laughs> Ouch. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, go, go Stars. Apparently, the hockey is do, is doing pretty well <laughs> yeah. this week. Um, but yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch the growth of esports and sort of that. Um, I would say acceptance. Uh, a lot of the support I wrote. So I, I went to school for journalism. Um, so did which, I. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things that I'm uh, looking at the people that I went to J school with. Uh, I'm pretty glad I chose to go into the marketing uh, end of things instead of the reporting end. Um, That's why I became an analyst. I was a print journalist, yeah. and I'm not anymore. Same reason. Yeah one of one of my uh, one of my good friends. Uh, she's a reporter. She's the health reporter for the Atlantic, um, and she's by far and away like the winner of like the J school class. Yeah, that's, that's a good gig if you're at the Atlantic, but there, but there are so few of those jobs is, is, exactly. is really the underlying point. Yeah. But so, so sorry not to deviate, but I wrote an article for a website that I was writing for right out of college about how there was actually fairly negative about esports, and like esports will never be part of the Olympics. And some of those arguments I think are still valid, like uh, for soccer or for, you know, di- even like discus throwing or swimming while there are bodies that organize those things, by and large, like everybody kind of knows the rules and you're not beholden to a larger entity for, uh, you know, balance patches or, you know, servers being up, things like that. So esports is always going to have a little more of a corporate line to it mm-hmm. than regular sports. Um, and that I think is going to be the challenge for esports growth going forward is accessibility um, for everyone. And while, you know, everybody wants to grow those businesses, it's, it's going to take some balance. And I, I think that is sort of the, the question for esports now is like, how do you grow that audience beyond the gaming audience, um, which is starting to happen, but like, how do you make it accessible? Because anyone can watch a swim race at the Olympics and go, Michael Phelps won. Like, it's very clear what is happening. Uh, you can watch a game of Call of Duty League or a game of League of Legends. If you don't play that game, that learning curve is real steep. Yeah. Uh, a lot of subtleties to the, just how, how points are gained and, you know, and, and it depends on the game. It's different from game to game and genre to genre. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is fascinating stuff. We're actually going to pause there for a commercial break. When we come back more from Jonathan. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Bolin, lead analyst at Street Fight, and I'd like to talk to you today about Brandify, which is Street Fight's parent company. It's a local marketing company that provides a range of services for brands with brick-and-mortar store locations. So that's everything from retail stores to restaurants and moving companies and banks and healthcare providers and several other verticals. And Brandify manages the digital outposts where most consumers encounter these businesses today. So we're talking Google Maps and Facebook, Yelp, Apple Maps, and Bing. And the name of the game is really to create a compelling presence on these sites and apps and to engage with consumers more effectively using advanced reputation management tools. And this is all really compelled by the fact that 97% of consumers regularly search online for local businesses. So brands today can't afford to be missing from all those channels or lack multimedia content or contact information or visible responses to customer feedback. So Brandify synthesizes and optimizes all these channels through a local market platform and it's all about standing out and winning the loyalty and lifetime value of tech savvy consumers so to learn more visit brandify.com
So we're back. My guest is Jonathan Harrop. So Jonathan, before the break, we were talking all about you, your background, and lots of, I think, nice contextual tee-ups for now talking or going a bit deeper on uh, Ad Colony. Um, so let's kind of drill down a little bit further from the description you gave us um, kind of at the front end um, and really just kind of tell us about, you know, the company's mission, its differentiators, you know, as a mobile advertising platform. And then if you can, any kind of figures to give us a sense of operational scale for the business. Yeah. So Ad Colony is a mobile ad network. Uh, I think we're all supposed to admit that now, thanks to Apple requiring us all to sign up for a SK ad network ID. All right. Uh, you know, over the years, Ad Colony and several of us have tried different, you know, naming conventions because Ad Network had sort of a stigma to it. But, you know, let's let's all call a spade a spade. We're an Ad Network. We sure. connect uh, advertisers with uh, eyeballs, essentially. Um, it's been around since uh, 2008 or 2011, depending on how you count. Um, Ad Colony actually started out as a game developer called Gerbo. Um, they had a dozen of the first 100 apps in the App Store, um, and they very quickly realized that like, hey, we can, there's a niche here for growth and user acquisition that didn't exist at the time. Um, the other thing that really catalyzed them shifting all the way to being uh, an ad network is working on some stuff for ESPN for, I want to say it was the not 2010 Winter Olympics. Um, this was before my time, obviously. Uh, but basically they, they hit on the, what became known as our instant play technology which is the ability for video ads to load instantly with no buffering so that the user experience is uh, essentially uninterrupted and much better mm. rather than have to sit, you know, watch ad and then wait three seconds for the ad to load. Now, back in 2010, 2011, um, obviously we weren't quite yet in the LTE phase yet. Um, 5G was not even, I think, discussed. Uh, so bandwidth was an issue. Um, as time has gone on, um, that sort of, differentiator has become less and less critical. Uh, it's still a core part of our product um, with that you know, instant, instantly loading technology, especially in areas of the world where connectivity isn't quite as good. Um, instant play is hugely important, uh, especially in like APAC and certain areas of Europe and LATAM, um, where you know, they're not quite as blessed with uh, LTE and 5G connections in the same way that uh, we in North America are. Mm -hmm. uh, or they're just more rural areas, you know? Um, and then, you know, you go to South Korea and we're, we're a little bit behind over, <laughs> over here in terms of connectivity. Yep. Uh, but as that time went on, uh, they continued to innovate on, on ad formats. Uh, the big other one that we have going now is our Aurora video, which is enabling interactivity within the video itself. And that's something that continues to drive engagement for uh, both brands and user acquisition. Uh, so being able to actually turn that video into a playable, obviously there's other playable formats out there. Um, but we've seen a lot of success with it. We've been at the forefront of those waves for quite a while. Um, and advertisers love it, uh, as do users for the most part. Engagement numbers for an Aurora campaign almost always blow standard video and display out of the water. Uh, video completion rates are way higher. Uh, brand advertiser KPIs are higher. Uh, all of our UA audiences tend to be pretty happy with us. Um, you know, uh, the, the app install market is a little rockier uh, on any given day than the yes. brand install market normally. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, it's good, and we have a, a really strong mix. Um, so from kind of the outset, Ad Colony was looking to do more than just UA, although UA is still a, a, the, the vast majority 
uh, of our of our revenue, it's probably about 50% of our demand on any given day. It's a pretty even mix. Uh, we actually, the first brand campaign that ran on Ad Colony was actually The Spy Next Door, which is a Jackie Chan movie. Mm. Um, I had to try and, and it's, we've been through a few system upgrades since then and, and trying to find screenshots of that campaign was a bit of a challenge. Mm. Um, so we've always had a strong brand advertising uh, part of our network. So we've been able to kind of ride the waves of, uh, you know, going earlier into this year when a lot of brand uh, demand dropped, obviously, uh, all the UA demand picked up. And so we've been able to ride that out a little smoother than some, some people. Mm. Um, the other great thing that's, it works the inverse way as well. So if for whatever reason, like a new iOS update happens to uh, curtail UA demand for some reason, the brand, the brands pick it up and they go, Hey, here's all this great inventory I can access. Um, in terms of reach, you know, uh, we've got 300 million plus integrated apps on any given day. Uh, our total reach, including our programmatic network, is about one and a half billion people worldwide. Um, we have a, a blend of programmatic and owned inventory. So the way our technology works is we actually talk to the developers and convince them to integrate our SDK to show the app. Um, that means that we actually have that supply. Uh, it's not owned by us. We don't make the apps. Uh, but we have that supply, so we're not reselling anything. Uh, but on the back end, our SDK can actually service uh, as a SSP for uh, advertisers, and it can also act as a DSP for um, for developers because we have a programmatic uh, injection point into our into our bid process. Mm -hmm. um, so that allows us to kind of like run our run. Uh, demand and kind of get the best option for any given impression uh, and any given user theoretically. Um, so it, it kind of blends those uh, blends the advertising sources for developers with very little effort on their end. Um, and that's uh, it's worked out pretty well. Uh, it's we've had a great year. We've had a, a great, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's been, it's been a fun ride, but it's the last last year and a half ish has been a, an outstanding time to be here yeah so it's so a lot of things to sink our teeth into there i want to hear a little bit more about aurora and also the kind of the, the business model and how that kind of is packaged and priced like as a dsp and as all the other components you mentioned but first uh, a quick comment I, I think it's interesting when hearing about the, the the sort of backstory and evolution of the company uh seems to fit kind of a at least at a high level, a common pattern that I often see, which is that if you look at a lot of ad networks, they, they started as something else, right? Whether that be a technology provider or a publisher network, and in a lot of cases, they realize it's not too much of a leap from that to kind of build an ad network, either as a pivot or as like an auxiliary, you know, revenue stream. Um, and you see that a lot. And one example that I think is most top of mind because they just went public is Unity. And of course, in the gaming world, you know, you know Unity. And for those unfamiliar, it's a very prevalent kind of game engine um, that has democratized a lot of game creation. Um, and, and when looking at their S1, because they recently went public uh, in, in you know, the, the run up to that, I was actually surprised to see that the majority of their revenue isn't you know licensing for the game engine, but it's actually the ad network that they've built. And the proposition that they have for game developers is not only use unity to create your game but if you then want to monetize your game if it's something that is in the mobile realm and common kind of monetization schemes such as in-app purchases or monetizing through ads 
um, you know, they've kind of added that as a component to their service, and it actually kind of took over a large share of their revenue. So you could you could kind of almost say technically, you know, even though it's sexier to be a game engine, you were talking about earlier about the the stigmas of of, of ad networks, but that's kind of what they are, at least in in some sense. <laughs> so any thoughts on that, and, and like the interplay of of how these kind of ad networks kind of come to be from your perspective of how you guys did it? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, Unity is uh, actually a great partner of ours um, that we have a plug-in for their app. Yep. Um, Impressive company, uh, by the way. I, I don't mean to disparage them in any way. I'm a, I'm a big fan of what they've done in the business world. No, I think they're great. Uh, I, I just want to, you know, they're, they're, they're our competitor, but they're also our partner, which I think is a, a you know, anyone in ad tech, I think, understands that um, we're all friends more often than we're enemies. Right. Uh, you, you win some auctions, you lose some auctions. Um it is, you know, it is what it is by by and large. Uh, we're we're not we're not all Pepsi versus Coke. Yep. Uh, to 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 make it a little more aggressive. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, uh, Unity is interesting because because they create the game engine and it is a relatively low cost game engine. Uh, it is very popular with mobile developers. Contrast that with say Epic, yep. who uh, it's free up until you start earning a million dollars and then you got to pay them. Um, so they sort of like go the other direction, um, but Epic doesn't have that, uh, their Unreal Engine doesn't have that built-in network because they want to focus on making games because that's their core business. Yep. Um, whereas Unity kind of went, we enjoy making this engine. There's some great stuff that comes out of it. How can we continue to provide value uh, to our developers and make sure that people keep using our technology to build games? Um, Unity has a, a slightly different uh, growth trajectory i would say and i think a lot of their current valuation which is looking uh like uh, i made a good call on on monday uh they have done a great job positioning themselves as a more triple a engine than they used to be so yep. it used to be that unity was like purely mobile uh quote unquote kid stuff uh, not that fall guys has uh, done a whole lot to alleviate that image but like there's other great games out there that are being made with unity and they all look so different that they come off as a very flexible toolkit and i think that's what's really important uh by being able to essentially check a box if you're making a mobile app and say i want to use unity ads if you're a you know in his garage developer who doesn't want to go and like google what's the best ad network what's the best yeah why not app? if it's like that easy just check, check the box. a box yeah that said uh once anyone starts earning enough to kind of like question is this my day job or not you tend to find that most people will integrate an ad colony facebook audience network ad mob that makes uh, sense and then they add the mediation layer on top of that and things still are, are relatively simple and uh from an update perspective unity does have a little bit of an, an advantage right um every time you update your game you're also updating your your ads sdk whereas for our sdk you have to wait for us to send you you know our GitHub to get updated, and then you have to download it and integrate it. And it's not hard, but it is a little more involved than checking a box. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you know Unity is interesting because a, a lot of their ad network is user acquisition, uh, same as ours. Their brand business is still sort of, um, you know, they, they want to be in that space too because that's where the the real fun is, and I think that's where a lot of developers want their ads to come from. Um, so they they've got a great. Um, a great platform and like i said we work with them both on the the engine side by integrating with uh making sure our, our technology works with theirs um and you know they they i think we have some programmatic partnerships going as well because at the end of the day a rising tide lifts all boats mm -hmm. very, very well said so um two other areas i want to go into 
and, and they both relate to experience, user experience. So um, I want to kind of go deeper in kind of visualizing the Aurora ad units because you mentioned that they are performing better than kind of standard benchmarks. So kind of from a user perspective, let's walk through kind of what that looks like in terms of the interactivity, uh, et cetera. And then also user experience on behalf of, you know, your, you know, constituents, right? Like the publishers or advertisers, depending on what side they are. And, and really like for, from their perspective, how is that packaged? Yeah, so by, there's basically a layer on top of the video that allows us to do other stuff and measure, measure touches and taps uh, that actually allow us to feed that back into the, the other end. Um, a great example for this uh, that I know I'm allowed to talk about because a lot of our advertisers say, please don't mention, uh, you know, you don't have permission to this because that's what happens when you work with uh, major movie studios sure. <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, but a, a great example was uh, it's a Disney show called uh, Big City Greens, Disney kids show. Um, they just wanted, you know, standard COPPA advertisement, just standard, like, run-of-the-mill. Uh, we're not interested in KPIs or signups or impressions. We just want people to see uh, a cool trailer. Um, and essentially what we did is there were these chickens that would appear on the screen uh, at various points throughout the trailer and you tapped on the chicken and what that did is it filled your essentially bucket of chickens uh, and then at the end after the video played you would use a slingshot to shoot the chickens into space nice. um, I don't have any children uh, I'm a little outside the main demographic for the show I'm not sure how that tied in but it was very successful uh, and that sort of shows the 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 outside the box ideas. Um, you know, we've had several automotive brands that have uh, dealt with us. BMW is one I can mention because uh, we just did a case study on them on the website uh, where you can actually rotate the car around and tap different hotspots to explore and learn more about, you know, these extra special bright LEDs for safety or this is this about the car entertainment system inside. Um, and so that sort of interactivity is another layer that people can interact with without having to leave the app that they're in, which is very important. Um, and without having to like dig down and open another website and like click, see, oh, is there a link here? It's just like, oh, I want to learn about, you know, the headlights, tap the headlight. Um, so it can be very straightforward. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the areas I spend a lot of time looking at is augmented reality and, and one of the kind of here and now opportunities in augmented reality you know beyond a lot of the kind of endpoints that are more future looking blue sky is how it's being used as an ad unit today and one of the kind of benefits there which seems similar to what you're talking about is i guess the, the best i guess kpi we could translate it to is brand recall because in a lot of cases that level of interactivity and the way it affects the human brain and just the psychology of all of it when you've either played with something or you have this spatial understanding of tapping on that headlight as opposed to a traditional kind of 2d format um it, it really sort of you know gets gets the the messaging the recall all of that stuff and i'm not sure if any of the kpis you're seeing um, are indicating that, but I know elsewhere that has been proven in terms of that, what that interactivity can do in terms of, you know, solidifying, uh, you know, brand exposure. Yeah, I mean, brand recall is one of the things that uh, definitely gets measured with, in part with our uh, advertisers and, and we'll work with who, you know, whether it's Nielsen or whoever else they have sort of measuring that post, post install, but we've seen great results on that end. Um, 
I don't necessarily have that number right in front Oh, that's of me, okay. But, yeah. You know, I, I meant it more yeah. conceptually, but, but yeah. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can talk about engagement rate and CTR all day because right. uh, <laughs> I'm focused on like what is that, uh, what is that immediate deliverable, yeah. uh, which I think is what we, what we specialize in. And it's funny you mentioned AR because you know, Apple has uh, AR kit, obviously, which enables uh, any app to access the, the features of the camera that yep. – allow that um google has uh AR core but AR core is not quite as ubiquitous because google is a little more fragmented and you can't quite tell as much yep. um so I well you also don't have the sensor fusion as much with ver apple's just classic vertical integration of you know playing off of the camera and all of that yep. the, the android universe is so fragmented right and it's like some some devices work with AR core some don't and it's yeah yeah i, I think the best the best uh, and the thing is like it's kind of difficult to make an AR ad unit for because of that, right? 75% uh, of the world's smartphone population is Android, and a good portion of that is not the Samsung, the Google Pixel. It's you know brands you've never heard of at a for a phone that was free, right? Totally. And that kills the incentive to to spend the money to make that campaign when the you know the platforms and audi therefore audience are so fragmented. Yeah, but that, that said, like I think there's a lot, of, and this is getting outside of what Ad Colony does, but I think there are some brands doing really great stuff uh, with AR in their apps where they have a little more control over like, oh, sorry, your phone doesn't work with this. Um, sure. Because if, if I hit that in the uh, the Home Depot app, Home Depot has done a, a pretty big push recently of being able to like look at your phone and tap, oh, there's a, uh, a wall socket space. Let me browse wall sockets and see what it looks like on my wall. Um, which is really cool, and I think IKEA did a fantastic AR. Yeah. Uh, IKEA, Wayfair, uh, House—they're uh, the, kind of the the poster child, children of the the visualization in-home visualization of some of those uh, inventories. Yeah, and I think because it's in their app, they have that sort of like Good we're point. sorry this is supported. Yep. Whereas if we were to deliver an ad that like technically wins that, and we don't necessarily, uh, you know. If it errors out for whatever reason because AR core wasn't enabled or like there was something else happening, um, that wouldn't be a great experience for the yeah. user. It wouldn't be a great experience for the developer because that user is unhappy. Um, so I think there's some challenges, and I think the the longer time goes on, the easier that's going to get. Um, yeah. Well, you bring up a good point in that not everyone can go and do that. The, the The brands we just mentioned have apps that have you know massive user bases, and they have the control within those apps to make these experiences. Others that don't have that installed base of like an app and several users have to go the route of of ad units elsewhere. And there's actually nothing wrong with that, but it's a different ball game when it comes to the technical capabilities of doing something in an ad unit versus within your own app, right? Yeah. Well, so it's funny you mentioned that. And that, that actually kind of leads into your second question, uh, which is, you know, what does the, the process look like for creating an Aurora ad? Yeah. And the answer is we do it all. Um, if you sign an I.O. with us, uh, our creative team will build it for you um, as part of your I.O. There's no additional cost uh, in most cases for that. Um, you know, that varies by advertiser. And I, I let my sales team handle those right. specifics. But by and large, like it's part of what we offer is if you want to run your campaign with Ad Colony, we'll build a campaign that's from the ground up for mobile for you to take advantage of the sight, sound, and motion tools within a mobile device that you don't get elsewhere. Could you come in and say, hey, here's my 30-second TV spot. Just throw this on your on there. Um, yeah, you totally could. And we also, you know, 
pull in anything with a you know an HTML end card or a standard six second video. We we pull that all in from um, programmatic partners all the time. But do you really see the difference uh, when it's something that we create in a bespoke nature that only works via our SDK? Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we're actually going to pause there for our last commercial break. When we come back, more from Jonathan. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Bolin, lead analyst at Street Fight, and I'd like to talk to you today about Brandify, which is Street Fight's parent company. It's a local marketing company that provides a range of services for brands with brick and mortar store locations. So that's everything from retail stores to restaurants and moving companies and banks and healthcare providers and several other verticals. And Brandify manages the digital outposts where most consumers encounter these businesses today. So we're talking Google Maps. Facebook, Yelp, Apple Maps, and Bing. And the name of the game is really to create a compelling presence on these sites and apps and to engage with consumers more effectively using advanced reputation management tools. And this is all really compelled by the fact that 97% of consumers regularly search online for local businesses. So brands today can't afford to be missing from all those channels or lack multimedia content or contact information or visible responses to customer feedback. So Brandify synthesizes and optimizes all these channels through a local marketing platform and it's all about standing out and winning the loyalty and lifetime value of tech savvy consumers so to learn more visit brandify.com So we're back. My guest is Jonathan Harrop. So Jonathan, before the break, we we're talking about lots of things, what you guys are doing, how that relates to the broader environment. And one of those macro factors we were talking about is how, you know, some brands are advantaged in that they have, you know, their own apps that have massive user bases. So they can do things that are kind of marketing related within their own apps, as opposed to going the route of kind of paid advertising elsewhere, or, or they do both. But the point is that, um, you know, that relates to the, the broader environment and a lot we're hearing about how the platforms are you know may or may not have too much control but the fact is that they they do have a lot of control over you know the app creation environment the the app search environment the app discoverability environment so how do you see all that coming together in terms of you know the the brands out there that are kind of at the whims of of, of those large platform decisions how are you seeing that are you kind of working with those companies and, and what what's some of your kind of outlook there so I think that's a, a great question. It's one that I think marketers are who are aware of this stuff are wrestling with basically every day. Um, I, I think it's fair to focus on Apple on this one. Yep. Um, I do think Google, uh, with regards to especially the privacy stuff, will eventually follow along. Uh, but Apple's sort of leading the way on this. Uh, for context for, for your listeners, Apple back in June announced that they were essentially making the, the identifier the equivalent of the cookie in the app world called the IDFA, mm -hmm. uh, they were essentially deprecating it. Uh, it becomes an opt-in on an app-by-app -app basis. Uh, and, and it was a kind of like, by the way, at WDBDC, like, by the way, we're killing uh, this major thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, I think everybody sort of like expected some changes to how the IDFA was going in. Right. Um, you know, I, I remember when they deprecated the UDID for advertising um, yep. and replaced it with the IDFA. Um, and and but separate really... but related, Google, as we all know, has you know announced that they are killing the browser cookie, and it's just a, there's a, there's a lot of kind of similar things out there uh, in terms of yeah. headwinds. But I'm yeah. sorry, go on. 
<laughs> no, no, no. And I think that's a good point. Like, and to, to Google's credit, like, well, not to Google's credit per se, but like Apple did it first with Safari. Yep. Uh, and then yep. Google quickly followed suit. So I would expect Google's uh, Flash. There's a long ideas. line of things that fall under this category, right? <laughs> oh, I could talk about Flash all day, man. Right. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm sorry I keep sidetracking you. Please go on no, uh, regarding no, no. Apple and IDFA. So um, if you're a, a large brand, you now have a, an obstacle when someone installs your app. Uh, you get that Flash up that says, hey, um, if you share that IDFA at all, you have to show this modal that's controlled by Apple that says this app would like to share your data across other apps and networks. And you can say don't allow or you can say okay. Now, initially, a lot of us were very pessimistic and anticipating very high opt-out rates, um, which basically means that IDFA gets sent to zeros, which essentially means those devices disappear from a segmentation and targeting standpoint. Hmm. There's other parts of that opt-out that aren't as widely discussed. So, for example, if you use Facebook uh, OAuth for your uh, user login or you use Google SSO or basically anything but sign in with Apple, if that user says no to that no tracking uh, modal, you can no longer use those SSO methods, which is a big shift hmm. in how uh, a lot of brands are building their user base. Um, so I think there's a challenge that brands need to be aware of around this that's well beyond just the targeting space. Like so much, so many people are talking about segmentation and targeting, the shift to contextual, um, all that stuff is very, very important. But if you have an app and you're a brand, you need to start looking a lot more closely at how you collect the user data, yep. how you position those, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then on the other end of it, if you're the guy at, at um, you know, major coffee brand, and you're responsible for dealing with an agency for UA, you now have to deal with Apple's SK Ad Network uh, framework, which is their method of attributing installs to campaigns without an IDFA. So the current framework is uh, the app reports to a measurement partner. This is the ad network that contributed 50% to this install. This is the one that contributed 25%, so on and so forth. Without an IDFA, that receipt never happens. Uh, so Apple has introduced this SK Ad Network framework. Now, not only does your campaign have to run with SK Ad Network, but your app has to support that like thumbs up at the end. So, so your app has to both say, yes, this is where I came from, and tell the ad network, which is another big change. But they also have to support it from a monetization standpoint. Now, if I'm that guy running UA, uh, I might know that I need to make that change to SK Ad Network, but there's a decent chance that I don't know who in my company is in charge of the app uh, because some of these brands are very large and that it may, the app may be getting made uh, you know, in LA when the UA guy is based in New York or maybe even in another country. For a lot of brands, it may not even be made in-house. It may be made by their their ad agency. And a lot of those ad agencies will farm that development out. So there mm. could be several degrees of separation between the guy that says, I need to run my campaigns with SK Ad Network and the guy who actually implements that SK Ad Network code. So you know, Apple obviously came out after a lot of backlash uh, and said, we're going to delay this part of the requirements. You can still do it if you want, but it's not required. Uh, three months was not enough time. Basically, the, uh, 
all the developers out there basically went, this is a huge change to the way we monetize. We don't like this. Um, all of the ad networks, we basically went like, all right, like time to knuckle down and do this, but three months is not a lot of time. Um, Facebook very publicly said, this is the worst change we've ever seen. Hmm. Uh, and eventually Apple kind of said, we'll hold off uh, until early 2021. Now, if I'm a regular app developer, if I'm an ad network, that's good, but we're still going to focus on it. Um, the, my favorite metaphor that I've been using is the teacher has not said the homework assignment is not due. The homework assignment just has a, a, a newer date. Um, right. And there's a chance that like Apple grades that homework harder because we've all had more time with it. Um, but if you're a brand, you basically just got given uh, essentially like a second life here. Yeah. Uh, because basically no brands were prepared for that SK ad network change. Those six months need to be, I'm saying six months, that's a total guess uh, transparently. Um, you need to be finding out who are the people responsible for these different components of your app and your app campaign and get in a virtual room and say, hey, what do we need to change to be ready when Apple does press the big red button? Um, and I think that's something that a lot of brands need to be aware of that that they're not because privacy is uh it's the big it's the big term uh for the year i think in ad tech i think it's the big term in most media and advertising it's certainly the big term in technology um and i don't think it's going anywhere um, yeah that, so that's uh I'll, that's I'll, actually I'll, a great uh sort of PSA, for lack of a better term, for, for our audience and the brands out there to really take advantage of this kind of reprieve uh, and, and this, you know, little bit of time to kind of get your act together because of the, you know, the, the worst case scenarios you outlined, outlined are, are certainly scary for certain brands um, in terms of the scrambling they're going to have to do. So I think that's great. So um, we're almost out of time here, but winding down, um, I want to know, Jonathan, kind of what you're working on now that you're most excited about and or what can we expect uh, from Ad Colony that you can talk about um, kind of rolling into 2021? Yeah, I mean, so we've got a few changes to our technology that it's coming out. Some of them are uh, based around those changes to Apple's campaigns. Uh, so we've traditionally always been a managed service, whether you're UA or or, uh, or a brand. We're working on some self-serve stuff finally at last uh, that's in beta. It's called BidSheet. Um, initially, it's going to be rolling out to... Uh, to the UA audience. Uh, right now it's running for Android. We'll, uh, we'll have uh, iOS campaigns go live in the next few weeks. And then we hope to you know, continue learning and keep expanding that. That's really exciting. I've been advocating for a, uh, a self-serve platform for quite a while. Um, and as we've sort of adopted more universal ad formats from the programmatic end, that's made it easier for us to do that. Um, what my team is working on, uh, I'm really proud of the research that we do. Uh, both in North America, in Europe, in, in APAC, uh, we do a lot of research. I would say more than basically any ad network uh, on a number of number of topics. We just released a uh, a whopper of a report uh, from in partnership with uh, audience intelligence company Disco. Uh, they collected responses from over 1,200 uh, Americans. Americans on their habits around mobile gaming uh, that was super, uh, super great to work on. It was a months-long project. I, I want to say the overall report ends up coming in north of about 80, 85 pages. It's a wonderfully detailed, beautifully designed project that everybody had a hand in. Um, you know, hats off to, you know, Gene and Ellen from my team, James, the designer. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. 
Um, we have other stuff coming out that's based on some of that data around Gen Z. We do our own research into, we've got auto buying, holiday shopping stuff coming out. Um, I think it's, you know, if you're looking to actually learn about consumer behavior on mobile, uh, you know, we've, we've probably got a report on that. And I'm, I'm really nice. proud of how that works. Yeah. And, um, you know, as an industry analyst, my ears perk up for, you know, when I hear about 85 page reports and, and great research. <laughs> so uh, I'll definitely be looking for that. And if actually you're looking for more kind of visibility around the results uh, and the kind of the data that that, that flows from that, uh, send it along and we can perhaps, you know, uh, build an article around that at Street Fight. But until then, that's all the time we have. So I want to thank you, Jonathan, for spending time with us. Thanks so much. This was a, this was a delight. And uh happy to be here yeah fun conversation so thank you all for listening stay tuned for more future episodes of heard on the street you can find us on streetfightmag.com subscribe on apple podcasts also stay tuned for lots more writings and multimedia from street fight so this has been heard on the street i'm mike boland thanks for listening <laughs>